Good morning, all of life. If you don't know me or we haven't met, I'm Rick. I'm one of the attenders here, and uh, I have the privilege of bringing the word this morning. Would you open your Bibles to Matthew uh, 20, the end of the chapter? Matthew 20, the end of the chapter. We're going to be looking at this uh, small section. It's only a few verses where Jesus heals two blind men. And I am really, really excited to be able to preach out of this passage. I had a a running joke with uh, Trevor and Jared as we were discussing who was going to preach us, which passage um, coming up. And um, Trevor got the bigger passage and I got the baby passage. And we were joking about that. Not that any passage has priority. We were just joking. Okay. But it turns out that I'm actually really excited that I got to preach this one, that I get to teach you guys from uh, this, that, that uh, we've, we're joining in uh, seeing a big picture. And frankly, this passage is such a turning point in the book of Matthew that um, we get to share this time together. So I'm very excited. If you're in Matthew 20, we're going to start actually a little bit above that, just for context, in verse uh, 25. Um, and, and what has happened in the story is that um, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with their sons kneeling before him, and she asked something and said to, uh, he said to her, what do you want? And she said, could you make these two sons of mine sit at your right hand, one on your right and one on your left? And Jesus said, that's not my position to be able to give that. You don't understand what you're asking. But he got to the heart of the matter, and Jesus said in verse 25 of chapter 20, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great amongst you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Trevor did a fantastic job last week. Um, I wasn't here, but I got to hear the recording uh, of this whole passage and what it means and how it applies. We're moving on to verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. And as we move down into the next passage, what's coming up, just so that we see this, now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to, came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the, valley, the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey and a colt tied with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, well, we'll just stop there. Okay? This is Jesus continuing on his progress into Jerusalem. We'll get to why that matters in just a second, but let's pray really quickly, if you would. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for what this passage illustrates to us, Father. Pray that as we look at a greater context to understand why this is a little gem in a transitionary uh, section of Scripture, that you would help us to see you with new eyes, that you would s- we would see you for who you really are. 
Because when we see you for who you really are, everything changes, Lord. Just as these blind men were able to see you and really see you. Lord, help us to uh, magnify you more, make more of you, to understand you more, grow our relationship with you because of what we are looking at this morning. Amen. Let's really quickly uh, zoom way out for one second. We're just going to go rapid fire through a little bit of context here about what's happening in Matthew. Um, I have to do some math. Got it. Okay. If we're looking in Matthew, uh, remember that Matthew's audience is primarily the Jews. He is writing to the Jews. He's writing to his own people about everything that happened with Jesus. If we look uh, at what he's trying to get across, he's trying to prove Jesus is the Old Testament prophesied Messiah. He's trying to emphasize Jesus bringing about his kingdom as that Messiah. And as we look at this little passage, we would say, well, why is this here? Why is this little passage here? What does, why did Matthew put this passage here in this place? Because one of the things that Matthew does is not necessarily strictly teach or pull the story together fully chronologically. Sometimes he pulls thematic material together. In this case, it happens to also be chronological, but that's not always the case. So he is intending to teach something specifically. And we're going to ask these questions. Why is this section here? What can we learn about Jesus and his plan from this passage? And how does this affect my relationship with Jesus? How do I understand Jesus better by what we're looking at? Again, big picture context. If we look at what Jesus has done, that Jesus uh, began his public ministry teaching to everyone, sometimes in the temple, sometimes to crowds, and the crowds were amazed at the authority that he had. In fact, he um, really, uh, as he began his public ministry, he establishes his authority by uh, John's baptism, by his knowledge of Old Testament scriptures and in his teachings, and the people were amazed. Who is this guy? He preaches with authority. Who is this person? And then he was authenticated also by his public miracles and signs. There's nobody else that could do what Jesus did. And the crowds and the people were amazed, and the religious leaders were alarmed. Who is this guy? He is going to take the people and their love away from us, and we will lose our power. We will lose our position. Jesus didn't really care about that. In fact, some of his strongest condemnations were against the false religious leaders that were heaping burdens upon the people that God did not actually intend. Those religious leaders ultimately reject him around verse 13, and Jesus actually starts to pull back some of that public ministry, or at least the way that he does public ministry, and he starts to veil his teachings in parables and make it so that Unless Jesus gives you the key to understanding what the story is about, the meaning behind the parable was hidden. And he did this partly as a mercy for people that were hard-hearted, that they would not be accountable for more information about Jesus that they would further reject. Their minds, especially the religious leaders, were made up. We are against Jesus. 
even in the face of Jesus's authority, Jesus's knowledge about the Old Testament, Jesus's fulfillment of all of the prophetic uh, aspects of the Old Testament, they knew who he was and they still rejected him. Later again, Jesus reduces his public ministry further in the context of the story progressing as we go through Matthew. And around uh, chapter 16, we see that Jesus kind of reduces it down to really his main disciples. This is after the feeding of the 5,000, which is really probably a much larger group than that. It was 5,000 men. It was probably more like uh, up to 25 or 30,000 people in the crowd. And Jesus reduces that down further because at that point, the people had largely rejected Jesus. They were there to follow Jesus as entertainment as a kind of a circus performer, as a guy that filled our our stomachs, right? Filled their stomachs. But they didn't accept him for who he was, not largely. There were individuals, but the crowd at this point had largely rejected him for the teacher that he was, for the position and the role that he was claiming. And Jesus pulls that ministry back down further, largely to his main disciples, as he again is making his way to the cross. And in chapter 16 we actually see that um, Jesus has now explained to the disciples that his plan is to go to Jerusalem and to be killed and to rise again. We see this in uh, 16, uh, chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then again in 17, Jesus tells them, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And again, in our chapter, in chapter 20, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and this is important, the context, Jesus at this point is already on his way going up to Jerusalem, He took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Now, the big idea for our passage is that Jesus cares big and small. What what I mean by that is Jesus cares bigly about big things and small things, okay? Jesus cares about the things that are large, overreaching, his kingdom, his plan for salvation, his care of his people at large. That's a big topic, right? That's a big thing. But Jesus also cares for individuals, Jesus cares for those that are the least. Jesus cares for those that are suffering. Jesus cares for those that have been in a religious system that is unjust and is putting a a weight that the people can't bear. That is pushing people away from how God wants them to live rather than understanding the true purpose of God and his kingdom. We're going to see that more and more as we go. There's a twin prong of Jesus caring large for the big things of life and his kingdom and kingdom plan, 
all the way down to the small. The very small things. If you've ever read a Tom Clancy book, you know that uh, you could learn uh, global politics by reading some of his novels. He gets into all this stuff that happens in the world and economies and countries and, and uh, some conspiracies that happen with them and wars that are started or averted. But all the time, in order for his books to work, there's some human somewhere that did some small thing that started a ball rolling and there's an avalanche that comes at the end of it, right? It's kind of like that. Jesus cares about the big picture and he cares about that small individual. And I want to show that by continuing to look at, again, where are we at with all of these passages, where are we at within the context of this, because if we don't understand that, we're not really going to understand what Matthew is trying to communicate by putting this passage here. Is that fair? Can we do that? Again, Jesus has shown us three times that he's heading to the cross. We can see that that's what he's doing. And in fact, have you ever seen the trend where people do the little heart like this? Can you do that? Make a little heart? Did you know that that's the map of Jesus' travels if you took one half? If you took your right hand, that's roughly Galilee here. Jesus has been in Capernaum in Galilee. He heads up to the coast in uh, Capernaum, comes back over into Caesarea Philippi, comes back down into Galilee, comes down into Jericho, Bethany, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. That's the map. That's the travels that he's actually on. Can you guys see that? Goes up and kind of spirals around like a big comma. Gee, this uh, passage from Galilee down to Jericho would be up to 60, 80 miles, something like that. It's several days worth of, of travel. And the first stop after leaving Galilee and that kind of surrounding area would be this town of Jericho, which is where they find these blind men. If you took an overview of how Matthew has arranged his book, people can, this is, this is not uh, inspired to look at it this way, but you could just observe that there are five major areas of scripture within Matthew where Jesus is doing a major teaching. It's called a discourse. Discourse is an authoritative encapsulation of teaching about one major subject, primarily. Okay, And there are five of those within Matthew. And after each instance of a discourse, a major teaching by Jesus, there's a section of narrative, many things that happen. And sometimes, as we're going to see in our passage, what, what Matthew chooses to talk about is related to what Jesus has said in his main teaching in that section. And that's what this is really about. This section that we're going to be in is a microcosm of what uh, Matthew has placed this passage here as an example of what Jesus has talked about earlier in the passage. We can understand some of these sections and understand that, again, Matthew is talking about the kingdom and how the kingdom is different in the first discourse that Jesus gives, it's in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. We're probably familiar with some of those aspects. I'm just going to read a little bit from that just for one second at the beginning. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the powerful, blessed are those with money, blessed are those in high position. Is that what he says? 
No, he says the opposite, right? You guys were getting worried. Where is he going with this? He opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If we go back forward to the fifth discourse, the last one, so that was the first, this is the fifth, we read something that has a similar flavor. It's at the end. There's going to be a judgment, and God's going to separate the sheep and the goats. He will separate people one from another as shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. These would be those that are in the kingdom and those that are not in the kingdom. You place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will come to those on his right. Come, you who are blessed by the Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we do those things? When did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these, you did it unto me. We see that there's a pattern in Jesus describing the kingdom that he cares for those that are the least of these. It's over and over. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are reviled. Blessed are those that have nothing. Blessed are those that give of their meager amounts to serve those that are also least ofs. And when we do that, Jesus is saying, that act of worship and service is for Jesus. It's as if we did it for him directly. That in itself is powerful, wouldn't you agree? We're seeing the heart of Jesus in this uh, kingdom. It's very different than what the world considers power and position and money and strength to be. Very different. Let's go back one second. And again, you might be saying, well, well, exactly how does this apply to this little passage that we're at? And I'll ask you just to hang on. I know that there's a lot of context, but you're going to see it. Go back to Matthew 18, a couple chapters, if you don't mind. We're going to do an ultra-fast survey. Is that okay? I don't know what we're going to do if you said no, so... 
And 18 is the fourth discourse, the teaching of Jesus in the whole chapter of chapter 18. And then the passage, the, the narrative aspects, the description, things that happen follow that. But it all follows a theme. And it starts with the greatest. The disciples came to him saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That is the key for this and everything that follows up until our passage. Who is the greatest? It's like this child. Is a child great? No. A child can't do anything. A child especially a little child, which is kind of the idea here, is a cost. Children were a blessing in this culture, in an agrarian culture, where you needed family uh, to be able to help to uh, work the fields, to do the job of the family, to earn money, to earn uh, uh, a place in life, to, if you were male, to carry on the family line for land ownership. Children became a blessing, but children were completely dependent when they were children. They were difficult. They were often looked down on. They were nothing. But Jesus is saying, when you have a humble, complete dependence on Christ, you are the greatest. When you recognize that your everything comes from Jesus and nothing else, you could be the greatest in the kingdom. Everything that comes up afterwards has this flavor in the whole sections of chapters, all of 18, all of 20, all, sorry, all of 19, all of 20, has this same flavor. And I think it's why Matthew compiled these stories in where he's at. But there's a flip side to these. He's not just saying who is the greatest, he's also by highlighting the groups of people that we're going to look at, saying, I care about this category of people. I care about these people. And I think if we don't see it, just reading passages or chapters, until we're actually set here to actually call it up and see what Jesus is saying, who does he actually care about? In this case, he's saying, I care about children. Further, he goes on to say, I care about children so much that if you're going to be someone that is going to hurt my children, and in this case, he doesn't just mean children, but his people, his people that are coming to him with that humble, complete um, dependence. Jesus has very strong words that if you're going to be the one that tempts my people, my children, to do evil, bad thing. Right? Jesus is saying, I care about children even up to this point. When we see the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus has 99. Shouldn't he just care about who he has? What about that last one? That's not good enough for Jesus. Jesus sees the needs of that one sheep, and he cares bigly. 
He cares enough to go do something about it. That one sheep that has strayed from the fold, he says, no. All that the Father has given me are mine, and I shall not lose one of them. When he says, if your brother sins against you, and we have this classic passage of how to try and win a brother back, which, by the way, that is the key to that passage, winning your brother back. This isn't about Bible-thumping somebody over the head, do what we say. This is about caring about someone enough to see restoration, to be in the grit and the grime and the lowliness of someone's life, to see that brother restored, just like what he just said, there was a sheep that went astray. Isn't that what he just said? Jesus says, I care about the one that's even in sin. And I've established a pattern for my church to be able to go after that person and save a brother. Are you one of those lost sheep? Jesus cares about you. Are you one of those people, and maybe nobody knows about it, are you one of those people that's in sin? Jesus cares about you. He has a path for you to come back to him. There's a parable of an unforgiving servant. Says if God is so great and he cares about the one sheep and he cares about even a fallen brother, what is our attitude towards forgiveness? What should it be? He cares about the one that other people are holding grudges against. If you're in the position where other people have been unforgiving towards you, Jesus cares for you. In the teaching about divorce, Jesus said that divorce exists because of your hardness of heart. People plan wicked things. If you have suffered under the oppression of an evil person, God sees you and cares about you. Jesus again talks about the children. They didn't get it the first time. The children come, or the people are trying to bring the children for a blessing, and they said, no, no, the master's too busy. Get these rats out of here. Jesus said, stop, let the children come to me. He cares about the children. And the rich young man, or the rich young ruler, teacher, what must I do? to be saved and have eternal life. And the one thing that he was not able to give up, that Jesus said, this will be an example of a heart change within you, is that you have to give up your dependence on your wealth and put your dependence in me. He wouldn't do that. It's an example of this same concept. He would not have childlike dependence on God. He trusted in his wealth instead. The disciples asked him, well, if it's so hard to get into the kingdom for what we thought were the people that were blessed, the guys with money, doesn't that mean that God's blessing them 
Don't that, doesn't that mean that they have God's favor? If it's so hard to get salvation for the people that are in the club and have God's favor, how are we ever going to be saved? What are, what's going to happen to us? And Jesus answers and said, everyone, this is in 1929, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake... You will receive a hundredfold because I am the restorer of all things. I see you and I care about you. If you have lost relationship with family or loved ones for Jesus' sake, he sees you and he cares for you. And the laborers in the vineyard, they all go to work. That's an opportunity, by the way. Not everyone gets to go to work. They get to go to work for the master, and the master says, this is how I will pay you. And he makes a deal with individuals at the morning, and at midday, and at the end of the day. And they all get paid the same. And some people said, well, we've been serving for longer. Don't we get more? Jesus said, wait a minute. Whether you serve for a moment or serve for decades, I'm the one that's in charge of the reward. I'm the one that's going to give you the reward. And it doesn't matter. Ultimately, Jesus is still saying, it's not about just the level of your service. I see you whether you came into my kingdom late or early. The man on the cross, Alistair Begg had a great quote about this. The man on the cross, the thief on the cross that Jesus saves. When he gets to heaven, there's a little word picture he uses. He gets to heaven and says, well, how did you get here? He was on a cross. He was in the process of dying when Jesus saved him. Did he get there because of his perfect theology? Did he get there because of his perfect understanding of God's word? There's kind of a word picture of the angel checking the records. How, how did you get here? Well, the guy on the middle cross said I could come. And that's it. It's not what we offer up to the Lord. It's what the Lord has already done for his people in establishing his kingdom. Jesus foretells his death a third time. Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. We see the request, and we see the kingdom ethic at play again in this. Again, this is what Trevor talked about last week and what we've already read this morning. If you would desire to be great, you would be last. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many, and we get back to our passage. There are four things that I'm hoping that we can see out of this. 
now that we have that as background, that this is how Jesus is caring about people, how his kingdom is different, how Jesus talked about his kingdom being different in Matthew 18 as part of his discourse, and as Matthew has accomplished thought for thought for thought for thought in writing this down, he's assembled these stories They're not stories, but events. He's assembled these chain of events to illustrate what Jesus meant in 18. We get to this little gem. As they went out of Jericho, remember, they've left, gone around, come back to Galilee, left Galilee, come down to Jericho area, and they're about to head towards Jerusalem. A great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men. What do we know about blind men in those days? That's one. (laughs) What else do we know? They're completely dependent. Typically, they would be beggars. Typically, they would be outcasts at some level because they're a drain on society. And it's worse than that because they had a very karma-like understanding of people's suffering in those days. Just like the rich young ruler was assumed to be a great person with God's favor because of his wealth, if you were born blind or maimed or had an injury that occurred to you, you were assumed to be cursed You were assumed to have done something wrong or bad. That God would treat you this way. This is a story in keeping with everything that we were just looking at. These are the least of these. Two blind men sitting by the roadside. I want us to notice their request. When they heard that Jesus was passing, by the way, that remember, there's a big crowd here. This is a whole entourage of people going down the road. This Jericho city was a busy place. This was a busy road. It was a trade route in and out of Jerusalem to other areas. Here's a whole crowd. They hear the commotion. They had been sitting by the roadside, no doubt, begging for their sustenance. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, Master, have mercy on us, son of David. Son of David is reserved in, within Matthew here as a title, is a messianic title, son of David. In fact, if you go all the way back to Matthew in the first couple of verses, that's what he talks about. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David. Okay? Lord, have mercy on us. Us, that's their request. What is it that he's essentially saying? Save me. My life is already nothing. I have nothing. I'm completely dependent. Have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more. I had a funny thought about how that would kind of be. You know, they, they're blind. It's a big crowd. Jesus is going by. They want the crowd to stop. They're shouting at the top of their voice. The crowd says, stop it, stop it. They're trying to find Jesus. 
Jesus, have mercy on us. And everybody else is slapping him back, telling him to shut up. The blind men say, you shut up, you're not my mom. But in reality, if we understand this situation, it's much worse than that. If we understand what the people were probably saying, shut up, you scum of the earth. You are cursed. You've already are outside of the blessing of God. What have you done with your sin? Stop bothering the master. You're trash. Be quiet. The crowd rebuked them. Told them to be silent. They cried out all the more. They don't care. What have they got to lose? Jesus, please save me. Save us. Have mercy on us. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. I think it's interesting that God works this out. What was the title of my last sermon from this summer? When we see Jesus for who he really is, it changes everything. Here we are at this passage, and it worked out that I get to preach on this one. That's amazing. Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity, that's, a, that's an okay word. Jesus had pity. It sounds kind of passive. Jesus had pity on them. Other translations say he had compassion on them. But the word means Jesus had a feeling in his gut. Do you know what that means? Have you ever had that where you feel something so deep down? The root word actually is where we get the word spleen from. He, he had a feeling that moved him to take action that he felt in his gut. It wasn't, he had pity on them. We need to understand that this wasn't something passive that Jesus was. This was Jesus actively understanding their need, their dependence, and choosing to do something about it. And he healed them. Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed them, followed him. This is interesting. This is the last public miracle besides his resurrection that is recorded before the cross. The last public miracle, and Matthew decides to include it here as a capstone for what has happened from Matthew 18 up to now. That Jesus cares about his overall plan. What's the big plan? I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to save my people for my kingdom. What's the small plan? My kingdom cares about the least of these. My kingdom will see those that are in need and will do something about it. There's two hints. That's, we don't know 100%, but it really looks strongly that not only did Jesus heal their sight, physically, but Jesus healed their sight spiritually and that they did see Jesus as the Messiah. They did put their faith in him. Some of the other uh, gospels record these events. They're a little bit different. Our text here is here, 
not those other accounts, but we can save this and say this is the meat and pull in some information from those other accounts and say that's the seasoning. We can, we can look at a little bit more information. One of these men was named Bartimaeus. The other gospel accounts focus mostly on him. There was apparently one guy that was the spokesman or maybe the loudest of the shouters. In the other translation or in the other gospel accounts, the words that are used that they received their sight have an idea that it wasn't just that their sight came back, but their eyes were opened. You understand? And the second clue that we have is that they didn't just go away. What did they choose to do based on their interaction with Jesus? It's right there at the end of the text. They followed him. They followed him. What did the rich young ruler refuse to do? Follow. What did, in chapter 16, Jesus say when he first told the disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to die, but I'll rise again. And if you will be my disciple, in chapter 16, you will take up your crosses and follow me. Jesus, or Matthew, again, is giving us clues as to what the impact of this little baby passage is really trying to get across. That these men put their trust in Jesus. We see that that is the important work that, that as Jesus is going, he's literally moving towards Jerusalem. And in fact, if you go back from 16 and into 18 and go from 18 forward, you can tell in the language that Matthew, even though he's giving different snippets of information at different locations, it's still, he's carrying on a particular story, and it's this, and then this, and then this, and then this. And then when we get to 21, chapter 21, it's now, when they drew near. It's a hard shift of focus. It's one of the reasons we know that Matthew's intention with this passage is to highlight the things that came before. This wasn't just a random miracle. This was Matthew trying to show that God cares about the least of us. God cares not just about his messiahship and his kingdom, but the people that are going to be in that kingdom. And I hope that that does encourage you that even as we walk life, and it's going to be hard, even as we have had losses in relationships, even as we wonder about what's going to happen to us, our humble, complete dependence is on Jesus and everything that he has done for us. These men cried out, They said, save us. What was Jesus on his way to go do? Save them. And us. It's an incredible passage. Shows Jesus' love for us in so many ways. How were people saved in the Old Testament? By faith. 
by faith in what Jesus was going to do? How are people saved in the New Testament and in the church age that we see right now where, where we're sitting here? How are people saved? By faith in Jesus? It's the same thing. One looked forward to him being on the cross. One looks back to him being on the cross. How are we saved? Could these men do anything about their own blindness? But what did they do? They asked. Jesus, have mercy. And that's my prayer for us. Even if we are saved, that we would be reminded of the truth of the gospel, encouraged and strengthened in how we need the gospel every single day. Because it's Jesus who works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. And if you don't know Jesus, ask. Ask. Because unless God is giving you faith and repentance and working in your heart, those people aren't going to ask in the first place. They would be the hard-hearted people that Jesus shut down some of his teachings and hid from and said, no, But if God is calling you, if your eyes are open, ask, Lord, have mercy on me. And if you don't know what that means or you'd like to know more information, come talk to me, come talk to the elders, come talk to Jared, somebody else that you're comfortable talking with. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for everything that you have given to us. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for how you demonstrate that love in small ways and in big ways. And even in real time and space, when you hung on a tree and absorbed God's wrath for our sins and made it so that we could have a relationship with God again and rather be his enemy, we are now counted as friends. We're counted as his children and adopted in and as co-heirs with Jesus of this kingdom. We love you and praise you for who you are. Encourage us by this word. Help us to spread the good news of your kingdom wherever we go. Lord, give us even opportunities to talk about this at uh, the Giving Trees event. Bring the people that need to hear your word that we can pray for that need salvation, that need a home, that need care. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.